we all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, filth, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club, Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. This is Jason Floyd, your host, a happy host. And we are coming to you uh, in our live cafe studio here in the heart of Soldatna. Today is uh, June the 8th, and uh, we're kind of on a different rotation. We were doing our podcasts on Saturdays. But uh, now they're a little bit all over the place because summer is, has descended upon the Kenai Peninsula. And as everybody knows, when summer descends, there's lots of stuff to do. And um, Wednesday market season is upon us. So if you find yourself down in the park at Soldatna Creek Park on Wednesdays in Soldatna, you'll find the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Mobile headquarters are Mobile HQ, uh, white trailer with the drop deck. You can't miss us. Lots of flags flying. American flags, big smoothie flag, big espresso flag, a big awning over the tent. We're right up by the stage, and I'm sure that one of the ladies there would be happy to meet your beverage needs. Um, but uh, we have a special guest in the studio today. Uh, welcome to this show uh christopher kirka candidate for alaska state governor thank you jason so you have become quite the road warrior of late unlike mad max though you uh your vehicle is a little bit larger <laughs> yeah well we're uh it depends on the trip we're either in a tahoe or or this today we're in a suburban but actually we uh we just picked up an rv and we'll be traveling the state in that quite a bit you know interesting factoid little uh, side note I was talking to my daughter, and she had read uh, something that RV sales across the nation are up 500%. It looks like I got in while the getting was good. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. You know, I picked up one a couple weeks ago myself, and um, there's a lot. It seems like there's a lot of uh, movement about the country, people moving from one place to another, people selling their homes, people buying homes, the the housing market on the peninsula and in, in the valley. Actually, I've been looking at places in the valley recently it is absolutely insane to see what has happened to the prices of homes and just sort of the lack of options yeah you know it's driven by um it's it's when you have the the economy is so manipulated by interest rates and all the funny money that the federal government's printing uh, it does no favors to our economy well there's definitely winners and losers in an economy like this and fortunately i don't think it's the little guy that uh, ends up on the top and um, I wanted to talk a little bit today. Uh, I kind of prepped for today in a, in a different way. Normally when we uh, do the show, it's, uh, I've got a list of different top stories that we cover. And, but I kind of wrote a little bit of a monologue today. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. I have a number of links uh, to different articles within that that we can drill down into. But I'd like to get your perspective as a potential governor of the state of Alaska, how you're going to address the issue 
of sovereignty, uh, both uh, state sovereignty and national sovereignty mm. when it concerns presidential and federal overreach. So I'll just launch right into it. This past week, Joe Biden unveiled a plan designed to strip Alaskans of our constitutional right to self-rule, medical privacy and autonomy, and the security of our democratic republic. His 13-page document outlines how he will cede U.S. sovereignty and the sovereignty of the various United States to the capricious and often corrupt oversight, regulation, and mandates of the World Health Organization. Outrageous. Biden's recommendations to the WHO would illegitimately expand the globalist agency's so-called authority to execute new bureaucratic powers on U.S. soil through amendments to the organization's existing internal health regulations that were passed in 2000, were ratified in 2005. The WHO, uh, unlike the rock band, is a United Nations agency purposed with the task of expanding global, quote, universal health coverage, end quote, through implementation of the principles of, quote, equity, end quote, a concept which should not be confused with the idea of equality. The WHO is an agency run by tyrants and fools who are not answerable to the American people and whose most recent accomplishment was to provide disinformation which was wielded to hide the communist Chinese government's cover-up of the emergence and global spread of COVID-19 from the Wuhan province. A disease, by the way, that has now killed an estimated 6.3 million people globally. Not counting the ones that died from vaccines. Mm-hmm. Seated Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy, by the way, has said nothing about this newest overreach of the Biden administration or what he intends to do to assert our state's rights and the sovereignty of her people. In addition to complicity in the global spread of COVID-19, the WHO's current director and architect of disinformation, and I'm going to butcher this name, Tedros Adhanom Gabrisius, once proposed appointing Robert Mugabe, the former dictator president and racist butcher of Zimbabwe, as a, quote, Goodwill ambassador for public health, end quote. In case you've forgotten who Robert Mugabe was, there's more than enough information and photo documentation of his handiwork available on the web. Mugabe was a big proponent of things like re-education. Maybe you've heard that word recently bandied about by the left as they talk about uh, Trump supporters and people who generally disagree with their fanatical ideas. Biden's chief medical officer, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has been quoted as saying, quote, so Tedros is really an outstanding person, and I've known him for the time that he was the Minister of Health of Ethiopia. I think under his leadership, they, the WHO, has done very well. 
Oh, by the way, Alaska's chief medical officer, Ann Zink, has said nothing about this newest overreach of the Biden administration either. Mm. So that's that's the deal. We have an administration who has taken an oath to uphold and defend our Constitution and to preserve the freedom and liberty of our people. So as the uh, as. As a new governor for the state of Alaska, what is your response to going to be to actions like this and others? Well, Jason, this is uh, so outrageous. It's, it's, you know, it's, I keep running into situations where I think, well, they'll, they'll never go that far. And they keep doing it. Um, let's start with the fact that we have a constitution and it outlines the process for doing treaties. And in order for a treaty to be binding law, it has to be confirmed, it has to be approved by the United States Senate with a two-thirds vote. And that has not happened. The president does not have authority to enter into an agreement with a foreign government like this, with a foreign entity like this, without the approval of the United States Senate in a two-thirds, a supermajority vote. However, even if that had happened, Jason... The Constitution is the ruling law of the land, and uh, this would be an abrogation of the Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution. They don't have the authority to hand over the authority of uh, healthcare-making decisions to a foreign government or to an international government. That's outrageous. So the, the position I have as governor, uh, when, I, when I'm governor, will be to defy this. Look, if you if you think for a second, if the if the if the uh, Former Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, thinks for a second that he can send goons in from the United Nations to close down our businesses, to enforce experimental vaccines, or whatever it is, whatever insane new scheme they have. Um, We already have laws in the books that need to be strengthened, but we have a law already that um, uh, criminalizes violation of a constitutional uh, right, or interference with the constitutional right. We'll, We'll prosecute. We will arrest and we'll prosecute anybody who attempts to, to enforce this in Alaska. So Joe Biden and his administration have doubled down on this idea of equity. I was just listening today uh, to the news. Uh, Code Vi- for socialism. Vi- Vice, Vice President Kamala Harris went to the mic to talk about the billions with a B, the billions of dollars that are being invested in Central and South America, Latin America, uh, under the auspices of stabilizing the countries from which all of these migrants uh, are illegally entering the United States. Uh, it's stating essentially that if those places were more connected, globally connected through internet <laughs> and uh, global, you know, global connectivity, that that their quality of life would be better, and that because their quality of life would be better, that that would encourage outside investment into their countries, so that people like us would want to go live there, or you know, buy a vacation home, or um, it's interesting that that this idea is that while our children 
uh, are being denied things like meals because a school district doesn't adopt a federal transgender policy that they're going to be barred from having access to free and reduced lunches or um, we don't have the money to secure our schools from violent attacks from the outside, but we can send billions of dollars to places like Nicaragua and Ecuador and, and these other places that, that people are fleeing from because they're, they're really difficult places to live under the corrupt impoverished systems and, and, and politically dysfunctional systems that they come from. Mm. And that somehow by having better Wi-Fi and more educational programs for children that they're going to not want to leave those places and not come to the United States it is, is, um, is basically taking this idea of equity. It's just a, it's just a fancy word for redistribution mm-hmm. of resources Tax Americans fund the world, right? And yeah, and the argument has been made recently it's about. Worse than that. I, I believe uh, Trump made a statement that that um, you know we spend billions and billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine, but we can't send any aid to our schools. Mm-hmm. In the wake of this Uvalde shooting, the thing that happened in Buffalo, previous to that, you know. Um, yeah. You know, Jason, show me where show me where in the US Constitution. Look, I, I'm 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 happy that you know we're gonna that not not we, but I'm happy for uh, other people in other countries to have a better a better uh, life, uh, for them to have internet, for them to have better uh, access to resources. But show me where that's provided for in the US Constitution. You know what we're doing right now, in the process of, of doing stuff like this and all the other foreign aid we've been doing we have been bankrupting our country. 40%, I've heard that 40% of all the dollars in circulation were printed within the last two years. We're destroying our currency and spending money we don't have. We're spending my children and your children and your grandchildren's future on the world. And you know, that, uh, that money that we give as foreign aid is almost never altruistic. Um, Uganda several years ago, and I know this is off the topic of the school shooting, but I just want to touch on this real quick. Uganda many years ago was came out against receiving foreign aid from the United States and the UN, and uh, because they realized that, and they, they they realized the agenda there. This was about population control, and so in Uganda, in order to receive these these UN and these U.S. funds, our State Department had strings on them. And those strings included Uganda and these other African countries bringing in Planned Parenthood and their, their international partner to push all of the sex indoctrination garbage that they've been pushing down the throats of Americans for years. And we're funding that with American taxpayer dollars. We're leveraging um, the needs in other countries to push these issues. So, so to the school shooting issue, you know... Um, it is outrageous that we have made our children in schools soft targets for bad actors, soft targets for mass shooters. I'm sorry, not mass shooters, mass murderers, mass killers. And so one of the things I did in the legislature is we filed a bill. We call it the Second Amendment Restoration 
or the actually the, the second title you're going to love, the Criminal Safety Zone Repeal Act. Because let's face it, when you ban at universities uh, law-abiding citizens carrying a gun, when you ban at at uh, elementary schools um, teachers and parents and faculty from carrying a gun to, to protect themselves and their and their students and their children, what are we doing? We're making them targets. We're, we're, we're putting out a sign for the mentally deranged and the, the uh, mass murderer, and we're saying, and the terrorists, they're, they're, they're terrorists, what these people are. Uh, we're saying, come here, shoot us first, because we will not provide resistance. Because, you know, we could talk about funding, you know, security in the schools and more, more police officers and uniform in schools, and that might be, that might be something worth looking at. But nothing beats having an armed populace. Yeah, isn't it isn't it curious that um, that the people who are so brazenly, uh, um, I guess, vicious in their attacks would go to a school and kill children and teachers, and not go to a bank and just kill all the people in the bank, and then have sort of the side benefit of getting a bunch of money, or. Right. Or going to the legislature and being really upset at people at the legislature. And I'm not advocating that any of this happens, but it's curious that places where there are guards, and there are armed guards at the legislature, you know, guards with guns Mm -hmm. standing at the port of entry, the the, the door that people come and go from, Mm -hmm. that we don't see, we don't hear about anything like that happening. You know, and, and you might be wondering what the difference is between um, or, or what the connection is between this WHO announcement and the issue of guns. Mm, now, yes, this, you, is, this you, is scary stuff. Uvalde and the tragedy that just happened there, you know, uh, they're in Congress right now arguing that they need to just basically take away a whole bunch of rights. Um, and punish law-abiding citizens for the act of a, a, a crazy guy, and um, blame the gun, blame the gun manufacturers, blame the guy who sold the gun, you know, um, blame everybody but those who are actually responsible. Don't blame the crazy guy. Well, we can't do that. Uh, don't blame his parents. Don't blame the FBI who had concerns about him. Don't blame the police who had concerns about him. Don't, don't blame the, the teachers who had concerns about him, you know, and this is a sort of a formula that we see every time one of these shootings happens is there's a whole network, a whole community of dysfunction around an individual who's highly disturbed and they fail time and again to respond in a proactive way to what is, in essence, criminal insanity. Mm-hmm. A behavioral health issue gone dark. And uh, the, if you read the document that um, the Biden administration sent to the WHO, this 13-page uh, document, one of the one of the interesting things to see is that it removes almost every every um, statement about 
the state having the ultimate say and removes the word may mm. and replaces the word may with shall. And so shall is a directive word that requires action. May is an operative word that says, mm, maybe, maybe they'll do something, maybe they won't, but ultimately it's up to the discretion of the state. And when we say state, we say the, you know, the nation state, the member of the UN that is under this directive. And so um, the title of the paper is called Strengthening WHO Preparedness for and Response to Health Emergencies. Now, the Biden administration tried to couch this in the language of pandemics, right? Epidemics, pandemics, um, outbreaks. But it's interesting to note that the left has for a long time been referring to gun violence as an epidemic because they desperately want to attach it to this idea that uh, it's a disease mm -hmm. and that those who own guns are the virus. Right. Or that uh, not just those who own guns, that the guns themselves are the virus. <laughs> right. And, and that those who own them are the contagion or, or the carrier for the virus. And that gun ownership <laughs> is a health crisis. That's the debate we just had in the legislature, Jason. On the, one of the last days, I think it was the, might, have been, might have been the last the day of session. La, the very last yeah, day. Yeah, last day of session, we had a, bill, a mental health bill, which was scary enough as it was, the garbage these guys push. Um, and the Democrats started adding all kinds of stuff, or trying to add all kinds of stuff about uh, uh, guns uh, and gun quote-unquote gun violence, which is such a misnomer. Um, and, and calling it a mental, or not a mental health, but a health, yeah, a health crisis. And I'm thinking... We might have a murder crisis. We might have a, you know, a, a, a just, I mean, gun ownership and, and guns are now a, a health issue. And transgenderism is not. Yeah. If, uh, if you're, yeah. if you are, if you are uh, uh, gender dysphoric. If you're confused. Yeah. That, that's not a, uh, that's no longer a diagnosable condition. It is just a way of life. And totally normal. And so normal that we should promote it everywhere we can to a whole population that has never had gender dysphoria. But all of a sudden we have this, this huge spike in, you know, little kids who never would have asked the question to begin with saying, well, maybe I'm a girl, you know, and then getting hormone treatments wow. and things, you know. It's and child abuse. It's totally <clears throat> child abuse. So the, the, the question that's, imagine this. Imagine if President Biden went out on the stage today or yesterday, even considering the recent events in Uvalde and Buffalo. And he were to get up on that platform and say, gun violence is an epidemic. It's a pandemic. It's worldwide. <laughs> and we are going to be progressive in our response to it. And we are confiscating all firearms today. We're, we're beginning a, a, a nationwide push to do this. Well, that would be committing political suicide for not only his administration, but his entire party. Mm -hmm. It would create mass, mass commotion. 
and response from the American people and all these millions of gun gun owners responsible lawful and he's calling for that he's he is gun orders that. Uh, but but here's the thing is if you send a document to the WHO and you're a member nation of what in essence is a new treaty which if you were following the law Congress would have to ratify but uh, he's just doing this through bureaucratic channels that are pre-existing saying well we've already ratified this agreement uh, with the uh, WHO but that original agreement had all these caveats this may rather than shall allowed the United States and its political subdivisions to say well we don't think there's a big enough problem to do it thank you for your advisement but we're going to do our own thing well basically his administration is taking something that was ratified by a previous administration yeah that wow. we signed on to as a nation and amending it to the point that it totally changes the nature of what, what the agreement is. And it allows the who yeah. now to come in and have folks protecting them. Imagine people with blue helmets rolling mm-hmm. along with, uh, not American soldiers, Dr. Fauci like people, but worse people who believe that, uh, that mass murderers in Africa should be, uh, uh, ambassadors, uh, <laughs> goodwill ambassadors uh, for for health, <laughs> going door to door telling you that they're there to inoculate you for your gun disease. <laughs> you know, and, Jason, that and, now, sounds... and now the president doesn't have any. He has plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not me doing it. It's it's the World Health Organization and the and the United Nations. We have no choice because we are bound by international law, and they have ruled. Yeah, that's that's an act of war on Americans, Jason. Um, and uh, you know that we have to be careful about these games that the former vice president is playing um, and the left is playing. Jason, you're absolutely right. This this is not a light issue. Sovereignty is a huge issue. You don't just give over the authority to things like this to foreign powers and to international governments who don't share American values. And like I said, we have a constitution. This is not rad. This should not be considered radical. That we, as a state, are going to stand up under a Kirk administration and we're going to defy them and we'll join. We will. When, we, when I say join with other states, we're going to join with other states. I mean, we're going to lead. We're not just going to see who else is standing up and say, "Oh, I, we can stand up now too," because you're standing. No, we're going to lead. We're going to stand on this issue. And if any federal agents or international agents want to come into Alaska and force new international or national "quote unquote" gun laws. Uh, we're not gonna, we're not going to tolerate it. In fact, the direction the Kirk administration is going to go is to say, look, we have a second amendment to the to the United States Constitution that says that the, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and we have a state constitution, Article One, Section Nineteen, that says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall is, shall not be infringed, and it's and it it. it Yes, it's even it's much stronger language. It talks about uh, political subdivisions of the state not being allowed to enforce uh, violate this, and it being a personal right. And um, you know the gun laws much less than it, it's not just the gun laws that we have on the books now with the federal government are the ones they're proposing. It's the ones we have now are in violation of that. So we're not going to be enforcing any of those gun laws when we when uh, my administration when um, the AG starts prosecuting crimes. We will not be, quote-unquote, prosecuting gun crimes, right? When, um, when the federal government wants to come in and prosecute things, it, if, there's not underlying, if there's not underlying crimes being committed, 
if it's just somebody puts a silencer on a weapon, puts a cannon on a weapon, that is not a crime. That is him exercising his Second Amendment right. We're so, not going to tolerate that in so, this state. So let me ask you this. Let's take that, that, that position a step further. So let's say the feds, the ATF, right? The ATF walks in and, uh, and they find somebody who is not violent, who's not attacking anybody, who's not uh, committing a crime, committing a, crime. a crime, you know, um, under state law. But they come and they say, oh, you're rolling around with uh, marijuana in your car, which is legal in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And you have a firearm in your car. Right. Which I believe is a federal firearms violation to have a scheduled uh, controlled substance in your possession while you also are possessing a firearm. Now, whether or not you believe in the marijuana laws as they're written, they're the law of the land mm-hmm. of the state. The state chose. Yeah, we're in de- this we're sovereignty movement, yeah. you know. So, so in that scenario, would you see your administration taking a position potentially to file an amicus brief or sue the federal government over their overreach into the state's? sovereign right to police its own citizenry in the regards to firearms and and in accordance with the constitution absolutely jason but lawsuits are great but they don't go far enough you're asking for a relief from a federal judge from a relief from the federal government and federal laws that's not that's not the right path to victory we have to put the federal government in their place and we have to look we're going to be using state troopers to potentially arrest federal agents who are in Alaska stepping over the line and Jason that steps over the line if you're here to enforce gun laws and we're not you're not here to stop actual criminals then you're violating the constitution and you're not welcome here pretty pretty strong position to take it'll be it'll be interesting to see it really shouldn't be, Jason. We have a constitution. We swear an oath. And and the, the legislature many years ago, I think it was even a, Kenai, a, a peninsula representative, I think it was uh, uh, Bobbard tell me, t- was telling me it was um, former Speaker of the House um, from Nikiski down here. Mike Chenault. Mike Chenault. He introduced legislation, and it, it kind of got defanged a little bit, uh, the fangs to be put on there. But basically, it declared our state uh, uh, independent and... Um, that we were going to not be enforcing. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the details of the bill, but basically, a, san- a, fed- a second amendment sanctuary state, and that if you're going to manufacture uh, firearms or ammo here, that it was going to be in- uh, immune from federal firearms regulations. But we need to take that to the next level, because it doesn't matter if it's just produced here, Jason. The federal commerce, the, the international, the commerce clause, of the U.S. Constitution does not give the federal government license to violate the Second Amendment. To the U.S. Constitution. And I, as governor, have an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. I don't have an oath to protect and defend court opinions. I don't have an oath of office to protect and defend federal agents. I don't have an oath of office to protect and defend federal laws that are unconstitutional. My oath of office is to protect Alaskans and to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Alaska. And that's what I'm going to do. It'll be interesting to see what... um over time, what your uh, opponents 
running for governor will say in regards to this this issue because I I've listened to what they've said. I've talked to a couple of them and they all seem like folks who don't ever want to be nailed down to any definite response. Yeah, typical politicians. I mean, they're nice guys. Charlie's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. But that's not what we need in the governor's mansion. We need leadership. Okay. We need somebody who's going to bat for Alaska. And in that regard, we can look at... And not afraid to make strong commitments. We can look at Dunleavy, and Dunleavy led from the rear. You know, he, he he watched all the other states file lawsuits whenever there was a federal overreach that's, issue that's and not, he jumped in jumped in like number eight you know it's kind of like that kid in the classroom who sits there and the teacher asks how many believe answer a is the right answer how many people believe answer b is the right answer and they that kid in the back of the room surveys visually what everybody else is doing with their hands mm-hmm. and waits to see the most hands raised and then Shoots his hand up at the the very last minute. That me too, me that, too, me too. Yeah, yeah, that that that's what Dunleavy. Well, you know, Dunleavy was an educator and in in the educational system. So I guess that makes sense. You know that he was yeah. that kid in the back of the classroom, taking <clears throat> a sort of a visual poll to see which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, and look, I don't begrudge the administration for trying to take a tactical approach with looking for the most friendly uh, court jurisdictions to file lawsuits in or to join. But he has not been leading. All right. Alaska has been. um, We are we have been not been given full rights as a state. And there is a dearth of leadership in our country. There's a dearth of leadership. You know, honestly, I don't think Ron DeSantis is all that fantastic, but he's the he's freaking awesome compared to these other governors compared to our governor. I think he's yeah, he's okay. I'm excited about Ron DeSantis. What, only would, because, what would your criticism because, of Ron DeSantis be? Um, I think he could, he could do, from what I've seen, he could do a little bit more on the interposition stuff we're talking about. Um, and, and I believe on, on healthcare freedom, there's been a few things where he could have gone a little, bit, a little bit stronger. But I'm not criticizing Ron DeSantis. What I'm saying is the reason Ron DeSantis looks so amazing is because everybody else is not leading, including our governor. Yeah, you know, I've heard a, a lot of people say that if Ron DeSantis ran for president, that they would probably vote for him. Yeah, he's on the top of near the top of my list. I mean, uh, we don't have leadership. We have a bunch of. Uh, uh, and I, I still like. I kind of still like Ted Cruz, but you know. well, yeah, me too. But <laughs> you know, we don't. And look at the U.S. Senate. We got like uh, two. Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Lee to some extent. Um, uh, we got a, we got a very few conservative leaders who are willing to pick up the bat and go to war for their constituents, go to war for Americans. Yeah, good old woods, woodshed session. You know. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think Charlie will probably be better than Dunleavy, or, or I like to say less worse. Um, <laughs> but that's not what Alaskans need. We don't need we less worse. To, we need better. We need we, better's not good enough. We need great. We want to make Alaska great again. We've got to act like it and fight for it. 
It's not going to happen by making stronger statements. It's not going to happen by saying, oh, we're going to work across the aisle and, and uh, cozy up to legislators. No, we have to, we have to be like Trump. We have to go out with the bullhorn. We have to go out with the, the with this, uh, negotiate from a position of strength. And I will tell you, most people don't realize this, but the, um, the, the legislature is absolutely without question the most powerful branch of government. Don't let ever, anyone ever tell you the legislative branch can't do anything because of the courts or can't do anything because of the government. That's bullcrap. The, the legislature as a whole is the most powerful branch of government. Do not miss. You got to hold your legislators accountable. It, However, except, except for, I mean, there's one position that you have to agree is extremely vulnerable and without hardly any power at all. And that's the position of the Senate president. There are about uh, four individuals who are the most powerful people in the legislature. In the Senate and the four individuals in the House. They're the rules chair. They're the co-finance chairs. And they are, without question, the uh, the Senate president and the Speaker of the House. Oh, I don't know. Doesn't the president just sort of serve at the, at the pleasure of... Of the Senate, the Senate president, and, hey, and he's the, just kind know, of a you know victim that, of circumstance. You know circumstance. that conference committee that decides the final budget? All those are all appointed by the, those two individuals, the Speaker of the House and the conference and the uh, Senate president. Isn't that curious? Isn't that curious? Uh, in my last sit-down with Peter Michicki, Senate president, he told me he was—he just basically was a victim. He—he really—he really, he really didn't, he didn't have any control. It's he didn't have any real fault. power. He just served at the pleasure of the Senate. I think he thinks I'm really stupid um, or that the rest of the public is. But, you know, the reality is exactly what you said it was. And I was being facetious. Let's, let's put it this way. Course. As you know, and this is a distraction from the question about the governor here in a second uh, that I was about to talk about. But the on this issue of abortion funding this year in the budget, okay, um, a Democrat-controlled House, while I was in the House, we passed out pro-life budget language that wasn't intent language it was binding law that would have banned abortion funding in alaska okay it was binding law and the democrats and it was, passed it didn't they? yes the democrat well the republicans in the democrat controlled house passed it but the um in the senate there is so the democrat controlled house passed this language and the republican controlled senate stripped it out under uh and he you know to his credit he voted for it, the language but he didn't use his power he didn't use his influence and I put him, I put Senator, uh, Senate President Peter Manchicki on notice. I said, look, this is on him. If he appoints the pro-abortion members of the legislature in the Senate to the conference committee to strip this language out and keep it out and choose the Senate version over the House version, it's on him. And he did that, didn't he? Yes, he, he did. He was appointed Bert, he got, Bert Stedman. And he got worse. So last year when this happened, it was Bert Stedman and Click Bishop. And at least he appointed Donnie Olson, the Democrat, who's sort of pro-life. And this year, he went even farther to the left. He pointed uh, Bill Wilikowski, who's uh, aggressively pro-abortion, to that list instead of instead of uh, Donnie Olson. So no, and well, I, I, he showed you, didn't he? <laughs> he? He showed us all that he doesn't care about the preborn. You know what was what's, not important. What's, to him. what's disturbing is that the state. Uh, I was I was just writing a piece on this. The state uh, last year killed. Uh, well, there were. Uh, Something like 1,120-something abortions mm. in the state. Yeah. And the state government paid through Medicaid for something like 570-something of those 
And there's more. Those deaths. There's more because we pay for like several hundred out of state as well. Yeah, and so, so the and that is dramatically. That, that I'll tell you that from from the movement, I know that that increases the numbers, increases the likelihood. So it's interesting to me that that you know, and I I hadn't planned on talking to you about the budget today or your vote on the budget, but but it's it's curious to me to see so many in the establishment in the in the. Uh, Republican conservative slash establishment. Those folks who have attained high office trying to paint this whole thing as a nothing burger, nothing to see here. We just couldn't get it across the line this year, but we'll do better next year. Just Mm -hmm. reelect us. Just, just reelect us. I mean, we couldn't get it last year. We can't get it this year. Maybe next year will be different. If we could just get the majority, you know, and but here they had the opportunity to at least stand on the floor and even if it was just a symbolic gesture shout about the inhumanity of the state snuffing out the lights of its youngest most vulnerable, voiceless residents mm. without even batting an eye. And then to callously attach that to the leverage of the PFD and include that as an incentive to look the other way. You know, really what Peter Machicki and this legislature did was put the price of human life in Alaska at around $3,200. I believe that's the final number that was that came out of committee, mm-hmm. was that our PFD and energy subsidy combined would be something like $3,200. That's the end of the final budget, yeah. That's... That's the price of an Alaskan life, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. But, uh, this is the situation, Jason, and this is a totally distraction from the point I was trying to make. But if we want, if we're serious, uh, I'll be back up a second. Here's the problem with a lot of politicians. They might care about this issue. They might want to change. But they're not willing to fight very hard for it. And so they want to go on a record uh, opposing the abortion funding. They want to go on record standing for life. But that's as far as they're willing to go. They're not willing to make this a uh, veto, what I call a veto issue, right? They're not willing to make this as a prerequisite. So one of my commitments is a prerequisite to me looking at even voting for a budget means we're not going to be funding the killing of kids. Okay. So what are you going to do when they strip the language? So, well, I vote, that's why I voted against the budget. No, as um, the governor. Well, what, let me, what, let what me, are you going to do? Let me get to that in a second. So um, if those in the legislature, in both the House and the Senate, because it's the majority in both bodies that profess, that say they're pro-life. And, and keep in mind, to be pro-life means you're going to support life conception. That's what the definition should be, that you believe life being at the conception, and that is when you're going to be given protecting life. Um, and that is it. That is what it means to be pro-life. But we're not even talking about that, Jason. We're talking about abortion funding, which is like a two-thirds, you know, populist issue Everybody hates abortion funding. That does not take significant political courage to do this, or should not take significant political courage to do this. But if we were serious about wanting to stop abortion funding, then every pro-life legislator would say, 
this is a prerequisite for me even to even begin negotiation. This is non-negotiable. We will not vote for a budget that funds abortions. And until we get to that point, I believe the abortion funding will continue in the legislature. Now, back to the point I was trying to make about the governor. I was predicating it because I don't want to pass the buck as a legislator. The legislature is the most powerful branch of government. That is why it's in two bodies, and we have a bunch of individuals, 20 in the Senate, 40 in the House, which honestly is the smallest legislature in the country, and it's probably too small, it's too much power, and too few hands. Without question, the legislature is the most powerful branch of government. However, in Alaska, because of the way the Constitution is structured, the governor is extraordinarily powerful. The AG, the attorney general, is appointed by the governor. It's not a separate elected position. And this time around, the governor, the gubernatorial candidate, picks who is going to be the lieutenant governor. And the, the governor also picks the successor to the lieutenant governor. Uh, if you recall, that's how uh, uh, former, uh, I think, adjutant general Craig Campbell became lieutenant governor, is he was appointed by Palin to replace Parnell uh, when she resigned. And, um, and that's all done by the governor. Also, the governor has extraordinary power when it comes to the veto pen. So the president, uh, if he's negotiating with the Congress and the Senate and he wants to stop, um, stop something they're doing, he has to veto the entire bill. He has to veto the entire piece of le- the entire budget, entire legislation. But the governor has something called a line item veto. And it's even more powerful than that because so, uh, and the governor, not just a line item, but he can reduce the amounts as we saw Walker did with the, the permanent fund dividend when he stole it. You can take a, a line wait, item. Wait, 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 let's back up. Like he did when he what? When he stole the permanent fund dividend. Oh, yeah. He vetoed, when, he, 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 he did reduced. He it, didn't he? Yeah, he reduced. is, that guy's running for governor, right? Yeah, he's kind of a wacko. He thinks, <laughs> he thinks that people want to vote for him again. So, okay. um, uh, he is the, uh, the original PFD thief. Um, so, uh, the governor has not only line item veto authority, he can line item reduce any amount in the budget. And to top it all off, Jason, instead of it being a normal two-thirds majority of the legislature to override the governor's veto, which it takes the case with all other legislation, kind of like on the federal level in many other states, it's not two-thirds, it's three-quarters. Wow. So uh, the plan that we've been talking about, uh, Jason, with you, with, with our general consultant, the plan we've been talking about, how we're going to secure the PFD, and this is the commitment we're willing to make to Alaskans, our path through the legislative process to securing the full statutory dividend is to say that it's my number one spending priority, the whole full statutory dividend. And thus, I will veto every appropriation bill the entire thing, not a little piece of it, not just something I don't like. I will veto before even discussing it. Every appropriation bill, the entire budget is going to get vetoed until the legislature gives me a full an appropriations bill with the full statutory dividend in it. And for and them to override the veto, then they have they to would have need, a three-quarter. They would need 45 out of 60. That means all I need is 16. 16 legislators and to not 16 vote 16 no. was the magic not number vote, yes. this year, wasn't it? Where there were 16 uh, members in the House caucus, the conservative caucus. Um, we were actually 18. Um, several were anti-PFD, though. Um, and here's the... But you pick up those other the, votes on the Senate side. Yes, yes, yes. Here's the, here's the trouble with the issue, too, is that there are legislators who will campaign, like uh, Representative Snyder, I believe, for Anchorage, she's a Democrat. She campaigned on being full PFD and had and stuck with the Democrats almost 100%. She, 
they give them, they give each other. So they look at the vote and they say, all right, uh, this happened last year in the budget. Um, on the on the full PFD vote, on the vote we had to amend the budget with the full PFD, it was a 2020 split, because as many legislators as possible wanted to go on record saying, "Oh look, I'm for the, I'm for the full PFD," when if it was actually on the line, they wouldn't. So it's it's hard to really know exactly how many votes you have, um, unless you had significant less. So for example, if we had 16 votes for the full PFD or 18, we would really know. But when it's a tie vote like that, they we have what's called throwaway votes. So there are certain moderate or swing positions in the legislature where the big government cabal with the Democrats will say, all right, we're going to let you vote yes on this because we know we can kill it without you. But you can believe, assuredly, that when push comes to shove, they're going to side with the big government cabal. Uh, Representative Kelly Merrick is a good example. She uh, represents an area that I grew up in, a very conservative area. She was part of the Republican minority for a couple years. And then um, as soon as it became clear that we got closer and closer to cleaning out these rhinos, um, and the it was going to be— Republican in name only. Yes, the fake Republicans, the, the, or the—I the, uh, think that the great term for them is, uh, the, as Matt has put it, uh, our campaign guy, uh, consultant, is the Judas Republicans. So the, the Judas Republicans um, that have turned on their constituents and the promises they made when they ran for office— um, they didn't need her vote for the Democrats in the previous legislature. But since we cleaned out many of the Jewish Republicans and it came down to her vote meant something and she was on the line, she switched and she gave power to the Democrats. And she put Democrats in all the powerful positions of all these chairmanships. Inconceivable! Yeah. Yeah. So um, – when, when you're talking to your legislators and when you're, they're making commitments, you need solid commitments on specific issues, on specific votes, and how they're going to stand. And whether or not they're going to be giving power to the left. And look, you know another commitment we should be making? If you have a legislator who's a pro-PFD legislator, they should be making a commitment that they will not vote for a committee on committees report, which is the assignments of all the chairmanships. They will not vote for a committee on committees report for chairman of the finance committee or membership, of the finance committee for that matter, who are not a majority for the full statutory dividend. Cause look, if I'm, if I'm going to vote for a, uh, if I'm going to be in a Republican organization and you know, 90, 80% of us are for the full PFD. Well, guess what? That's who's going to be in charge of the finance committee, not the Bart Bonds or the Steve Thompson's that are there to kill it and take it. Let's talk about the word cabal real quick because people, may not know what that means. Uh, the dictionary, uh, I guess we'll go to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, uh, says uh, the first definition of cabal, entry one of two, is the contrived schemes of a group of persons secretly united in a plot. And ironically, it adds in parens, as to overturn a government. Also, a group engaged in such schemes. Uh, the second entry is a club or group. So oftentimes, uh, people have referred to Juno as sort of that elite club. And um, so I interesting, interesting word to throw out there in describing 
what went down with the budget this year. Yeah. I want to shift gears real quick. Actually, Jason, I, I just remembered I didn't answer your question. You asked me a question about um, abortion funding, and what am I going to do as governor? Um, so even if the legislature doesn't pass language in the budget banning abortion, they've been consistently passing language that says they don't want to fund abortions. And my commitment to Alaskans is that on day one, we're stopping the payments to Planned Parenthood. We're ending the abortion funding. We're not going to wait on the legislature. We're not going to wait on the courts to, to, to reverse their idiocy. We will defy the courts. We will not roll over to them. And we will um, fulfill our responsibility to protect life. And we will stop the abortion payments to Planned Parenthood on day one. Go ahead with your question. Uh, well, I wanted to shift gears and get back to what's in the headlines, this Uvalde shooting. Yeah. And I, wa I want to talk specifically about perception and spend, how perception becomes reality if it's not corrected. And, and you know, tr Trump just liked to define this down as fake news, mm -hmm. right? So as I was doing some, uh, some reading and prepping for, uh, for this show, I came across an interesting article that is published by Law Enforcement Today. So uh, that's uh, lawenforcementtoday.com. Mm -hmm. And it's titled... Digging Through the Lies and Misinformation About the Uvalde, Texas Massacre. Here are the facts and false claims. And so I think it's important as people, you know, nobody likes to see the pain and suffering that's happening. And when we're given information that's not accurate or is incomplete or is outright uh, false... And we use that to inform our emotions and then our desire for actionable sort of positions to take when we're engaging our legislature or our congressional delegation or maybe our school board or local police department. And uh, so what it basically says uh, is uh, the first claim that uh, came out was the exterior door to the school was propped open when the gunman entered. Wow. And uh, so, I mean, what's that do for you when you hear that? You know, if, if you know that a school has protocols to uh, harden the school to entry, mm -hmm. I mean, what's your response, your visceral response when you hear that? Wow. I mean, what questions are raised? Well, part of, my, part of me goes into the conspiracy mode of, okay, what? <laughs> okay, be, be an average American uh, who, uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so just, just the Joe on the street, you know, when just sort of instinct, instinctually, I mean, my mind goes to a place where it's like, wow. I guess we don't care about protecting our kids. Or what a failure. Of utter incompetence, incompetence by the teacher, by the system. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, I I think wow, you know wow, uh, what what happened? What went wrong? Well, first of all, I, I think you you're right in trusting your conspiratorial you know <laughs> suspicions. But the the law enforcement folks in review have said that 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 statement about the door being propped open by a teacher was false. That a teacher heard the shooter wreck his truck, ran outside to call 911, 
and was told by a neighboring funeral home that he had a gun. She ran back inside while removing a rock that was propping the door open because she ran outside and she wanted to be able to get back in, right? Mm -hmm. The doors were supposed to automatically lock when they closed, but it did not. The cause for that is being investigated. So if it has an automatic locking mechanism, why didn't that work? Instead of throwing the teacher under the bus and the system under the bus, maybe there's a deeper question to be asked here. Mm -hmm. Were they electronic locking doors? You know, was it a mechanical failure? Was it a maintenance issue? Or was there some other force working behind the scenes to make sure that door didn't lock? The next claim that the, that the media wanted to throw out there was police were too scared. So, I mean, we can tell right now where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, the defund the police crowd. Police were too scared to enter the school until Border Patrol got there. <laughs> Which I heard numerous times. I'm sure the cops in the scene weren't scared. Well, the statement was false because police entered the school four minutes after the initial 911 call. As they approached the classroom where the shooter was, he shot through the wall, a concrete wall, injuring two officers. Police could not return fire for risk of injuring kids on the other side of the wall. And they were only equipped with handguns, which people know have much less penetrating power than a high caliber. You're not going through a concrete wall with that. A high caliber rifle. So the claim was that... A border agent retrieved a shotgun from his barber and entered the school to take out the shooter because the police wouldn't. So, I mean, can you just feel the spin dripping off of this? Mm. The statement is false because the agent did retrieve a shotgun from his barber and entered the school, but then he stacked up in the hall with the police, as you've seen on so many cop shows. Mm Mm-hmm. Then the media claimed that police sat in the hallway for 40 minutes while the shooter killed 19 children. Well, that's false because the shooter had shot 18 of them in the first four minutes before the police entered the building. He then shot two of those officers. But there wasn't a single shot fired from the time they dragged both officers out until BORTAC, which I'm not sure what that is, probably the tactical team, the... Mm -hmm. The, uh, what do they call those guys? SWAT? SWAT, yeah. (coughs) Until Bortak arrived on the scene. During that time, police kept the gunman pinned in one location, evacuated the rest of the school, and eventually found the principal who was hiding with the master key. You know, I, I don't wish, you know, it's easy to make sort of observations from the outside. Yeah. And if you've never had a gun pulled on you or been in the presence of a gun that's being brandished in an unsafe or threatening way, it's hard to really know how you would act in that situation. I have. I've actually been in that situation. And uh, but, but you always, you know, I don't know if you go through these scenarios in your head, what would I do? Right. Well, we would all hope and pray that we could be strong and resilient mm-hmm. and smart and wonderful and John Wayne-esque in our response to a situation like that. And, uh, 
you know, but when I hear that the principal is hiding with the master key, I sort of get the this 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 judgment, I guess. Maybe it's not a fair, but you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I have emotion too, right? <laughs> but as the master of that ship, that school, right? Yeah. There's this duty-bound idea that the ship's captain doesn't leave the boat till everyone's off. Yeah. The ship, yeah. the captain goes down with his ship, right? Where was the captain? Why was he hiding? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, can you imagine a scenario how this would be so different if the teacher, if the, the assistant teachers, if the principal were all packing guns? Or if they just had off-duty cops in there. I was yeah. listening to one school district that, that they went to their school board. They, it, it, this was one of those school districts that was woke, and yeah. the parents got active, and they voted all the woke folks out this last round. And now they have a whole new batch of school, uh, school folks involved. And uh, sorry, folks, we got a lot of people coming in the shop now. But, <laughs> um, you know... Uh, they went ahead and put the question to the new school board and they went ahead and voted and now they're going to have off they're going to have retired police mm. officers that are going to be in their schools think about that response time jason 4 minutes that's extraordinary right. within 4 minutes you had cops on the scene ready to do battle ready to protect those kids and taking bullets and taking that is not but the point is and cops will tell you this that is not enough no and it can never be enough. There will never be a response time that's quick enough. You've got to have people who are working in the building because we could pass all the gun laws in the world, Jason. Well, I remember a story a You've couple of years ago. It, do you remember the story in, in, in Anchorage with the Fifth Avenue mall shooter? Mm. The guy that pulled a gun out in the Fifth Avenue mall, and there was a bystander that was packing, and he pulled his gun out and basically disarmed and put him on the ground. Yeah, they had two and, guys tackle the guy, yeah. Yeah. And got cut up in the process, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that guy was there, Johnny on the spot, on the moment, had it on him, saw the threat, eliminated the threat. A way to tell the police arrived to detain the man and, and take you know, him into Jason, custody. Jason, there are stories like that all around the country every single day. But they're not reported. But their media doesn't report them. Right. So every single day, lives are saved by average Americans, law-abiding Americans, who decide to carry a gun and stop some crazy idiot whether it's with a knife or some kind of a weapon or explosive, whatever it is, who's trying to cause harm. Because you know what we needed to stop that crazy person with the gun in that school in Uvalde? It wasn't gun laws. That wouldn't have stopped him. What we needed to stop him was good men with guns, with cops with guns, okay? But you, we will Actually, never... I think I would rather have a lady with a gun because in my experience, they all shoot better than the most of the men I know. <laughs> uh Goodman was a was a broad <laughs> sense, but um, you cannot hire enough cops to be everywhere at all times. Right. You have to have law-abiding citizens, principals, and teachers, and any adults in the in the in the, in the classroom. Um, whether it's ex-cops, I don't care who it is, but they've got to be on the scene and they've got to be armed and they've got to know how to use it. And we're not going to get there by having more gun laws. I've often thought that that um, that there should be incentives for teachers uh, and faculty who decide to go ahead and get their training. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they they get their training, they have to qualify with the firearm like a police mm-hmm. officer does. 
Um, and that like once, race. once they've qualified, that they, they get hazard pay. Right? The military does that when, when they're deployed to, to a, a, a potentially uh, an area of conflict. They get hazard pay. They get combat pay. And if you're going to take that gun on you, you have just elevated your liability and your responsibility. And it's, you know, I mean, wearing a gun is not always a comfortable thing. No, it sucks. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> I wear a gun most days. And, uh, and it's not always comfortable. But I, I get a different kind of comfort by having it because I know that I can defend my children mm-hmm. and my family from some whack job who walks in and wants to do harm to me or my customers or my family. Yeah. And so, um, but I've often thought that if they were required to qualify and then uh, they were had to, uh, they were issued a firearm or they registered their firearm, you know, because mm-hmm. that's their, they do that with police, um, and that they could be suspended for not properly managing that firearm, as a police officer would be. You know, if you just leave your firearm on your desk, that's a problem. You drop it in the toilet, that's your problem. That's a problem, you know. Uh, God forbid a, a child would get a hold of it, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. And so, so with that elevated risk and that elevated uh, responsibility and liability, mm-hmm. they should get paid more mm-hmm. and, and incentivized. And, uh, and they should have to uh, practice throughout the year. And it could be part of their regular in-service training. You know, mm-hmm. they've got three months off during the year. Yep. You know, send them, send them to, to education, yeah. a, a, educational uh, defense boot camp. You know, they get paid a lot of money mm-hmm. and they've got great benefits. I love it. Jason, let's do that as a, as a new campaign uh, plank with our education stuff. So, um, so this, this, uh, this story goes on to say that it was initially understood that Bortak called out to the students inside the classroom and the gunman shot the girl who did reply, right? However... This writer says, we've just received a message, and this was an edit on the 2nd of June um, at 1 p.m. So they were writing this as information was coming into the, this, mm-hmm. uh, this uh, information site. They said, as of uh, 1 p.m. on that day, uh, they just received a message from a Uvalde family stating that a boy inside the classroom said... To fool everyone in the room, the gunman yelled out, If anyone needs help, yell help. A girl in the classroom yelled, and then the gunman shot her. Wow. So he was looking for people who were still alive. That is what prompted Bortak to breach the door. The next claim that the police or the, the, the media made was that police should have found a way to breach the door earlier. Uh, the response from the law enforcement uh, journal was uh, most, this is a mostly false statement saying there is no one right answer in these situations as there are too many variables. However, the police were shot through a concrete wall. The classroom door was an outward opening steel door set into a concrete wall with a steel door frame. This, excuse me, <laughs> this type of door is incredibly difficult to breach without special tools. Yeah. And they are designed to keep active shooters out. 
So this school had some kind of hardening mm-hmm. in its design. At the time the police were able to regroup, after dragging the injured officers out, the shooting had stopped. This classified the situation as a barricaded gunman with hostages situation. Rus- rushing a hostage taker will often force them to begin executing hostages, and this is especially true if you cannot breach a door within a split second and utilize the elements of surprise, like a flashbang yeah, or so whatever. Yeah, so you come in with the jaws of life to open the door, it's going to give them ample warning right. to start shooting things up. An example of this can be seen with the little girl that the gunman killed as Bortak was preparing to breach. So the next claim was that police admitted that they screwed up and made the wrong call in a press conference. This is false. A Texas Department of Public Safety official who is speaking from a place of emotion made some statements that have been completely taken out of context. During these situations, in the moment, you only know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. Decisions can only be made based on what you know at the time. Quote, with the benefit of hindsight where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was the wrong decision, period. End quote. Colonel McCraw said. The key words in the above statement are, quote, with the benefit of hindsight, end quote, and, quote, where I'm sitting right now, end quote. His remarks stating that it was the wrong decision came from the luxury of having more information on hand and more time to evaluate that information than any of the officers who were on the scene during the shooting had. Everyone is taking this quote out of context to mean that he's saying the officers who rushed in made the wrong decisions based on what they knew at the time. So the, the, the article goes on, and I would encourage you to read it in its entirety, but the point is is that perception and politics and law and news uh, in the news, this 24-hour news cycle, when it's all wrapped up with emotion, becomes reality for a lot of folks, and then policymakers feel compelled, driven, or motivated to make knee-jerk policy decisions, pass laws, um, and basically short-circuit the deliberative process Mm -hmm. of debate and evidence and hearings, um, which everybody rolls their eyes at and says, oh, the last thing we need is another committee on committees on committees of the committee. Jason, we know the answer to this. This has been a problem since the 90s. We have mass murderers targeting soft targets because we keep them soft. Okay, you're never going to like I said, you're never going to hire enough cops. You can you can second guess the cops' decision on an active shooter situation all you want, but the answer has always been to harden the targets. The answer has always been to put guns in the hands of teachers that you train and adults on campus. That's the, always been the answer. It seems to be the answer at the legislative building. It seems mm-hmm. to be the answer and at I'll the governor's you, I'll mansion. I'll tell you that, uh, that the, not only are there security that's armed all over the building at, at, at the Capitol, but there's a lot of legislators that are too, and their staff. They keep guns in their offices. Uh-oh. Did you just let the hat out of the bag? No, we're Alaskans. We carry guns. It's what we do. Did you hear what I did? I said let the hat out of the bag, you know, so... 
that was a mistake. Anyway, the cat out of the bag. <laughs> well, you know, we've uh, we've run a, a minute and 11, or uh, an hour and 11 minutes, and this is the conservative hour of power you've been listening to. Uh, my guest has been and will probably be once again in the future uh, gubernatorial candidate Christopher Kirka. Hopefully in the future we will have Governor Kirka to speak to. That's right. That would be way cool. Um, but, folks, we cannot sit by idly watching other people do the heavy lifting because they're putting those objects in places we don't want them. If we want our liberty and uh, our freedom to be preserved, then we have to take an active role in preserving it. And the very least you can do is to vote. But uh, there's some other things you can do, and I, w- I would be remiss to say, uh, to not let folks know that there will be an organizational, a volunteer meeting here at Ammo Can Coffee this Saturday. So that's, uh, I'm going to publish this podcast this afternoon, but this Saturday at 9 a.m. here at the shop. Uh, the campaign needs your help. That's right. They need uh, volunteers to do a number campaign. of things. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going to go down in that meeting? Yeah, so there's a couple things folks can do. They can go to the website. They can sign up. They can volunteer. They can donate. Those are all very, very helpful. Uh, we also have the phone app now, the smartphone app. We're the first campaign Alaska to have. We're going cutting edge, a smartphone app to cut around the social media censorship. You can go to the App Store or the Google Play Store, and you can search for Kirka for Governor. Um, and you can see the app there. You can download it. We will be pushing messages out on there in the coming weeks and days um, to you to let you know what's happening next, where, where you can serve, where you can join, where you can help. But this Saturday, listen, you can have campaigns that are funded by the elite with millions and millions of dollars. And you know what? I've seen campaigns beat them, sometimes being spent 10 to 1. I've spent 10 to 1. And the way you do that is with a well-organized grassroots army. And if you are willing to serve as a volunteer for the Kirk Huber campaign, if you want to make a difference, if you want to save our state, this Saturday, what time, Jason? 9 a.m.? 9 a.m. at 9 the Ammo Can Coffee, we're going to have a volunteer meeting. You can come hear what the, what the opportunities are to serve, uh, what the opportunities are to help with the campaign, and we can win this. We will win this with your help. Again, 9 a.m. this Saturday at the Ammo Can Coffee. Uh, be there or be squared. If, you, if you're serious about fighting for freedom, if you're serious about wanting to save our state for your children and your grandchildren like I do, then come help us win this. So that's our outro music, and uh, we just want to thank you for joining us once again. Uh, we hope that you like and share this podcast with your friends and your family, your social network. You have an opportunity to support us on Patreon. If you click on the link that takes you to our Podbean page, there is a place where you can sponsor, become a donor to this uh, medium. And if you have anything you would like us to cover on the Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon, shoot us a text or an email or come into the shop, let us know. If you'd like to be a guest, come have a cup of coffee. I'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about your perspective on what it means to be a conservative in this culture. Together, we can win the battle, but it's going to take each of us standing shoulder to shoulder, united in solidarity, speaking with one voice. 
Have a great day, everybody.